Uh, so tonight I want to share a koan from the miscellaneous uh, koan collection, which is part of our lineage. And these koans that we call the miscellaneous, um, we call them miscellaneous because they aren't part of any collection. So for those of you who are familiar with the koans in the Zen tradition, there's the Mumon Khan, there's the Blue Cliff Record, there's the Book of Serenity, there's the Degkuroku, and um, all of these are collections of stories and teachings and dialogues between a teacher and a student um, that have been kind of codified and they're numbered and somebody compiled them and wrote commentary to them. Um, but then we have this um, bit of koans called the miscellaneous that uh, really isn't collected anywhere. And actually every lineage has a slightly different version, uh, knowing people from different lineages. And when we talk about koans, which you're not supposed to do, I find out like, oh, I never worked on that one. And you never heard of this one. And so it's... Um, it's typically passed down from student to teacher in the Sanzen room, at least that's how it's been, um, how the tradition evolved to this time. And um, yeah, so I'm gonna share one from our lineage and perhaps some of you have worked on this, perhaps some of you this is the first time hearing it. I, I love koans, I want to use them more in public teaching because that was their original purpose. They are public, cases. Sometimes when I say in a Dharma talk, at least in my home sangha, I'm going to talk about a koan. People are like, I don't do koans. And it's, it's not as scary <clears throat> as <laughs> you might think they are. They're just, they're just stories, really. Um, you know, some of them portray the sincerity of a student's question and the teacher's spontaneous response, capturing a moment of awakening. Um, but koans also have this mythic, archetypal quality. Some koans are actually folk tales from um, the time, from China, from Japan, at that moment, at that time when that story was alive in people's hearts. Koan, uh, koan is play, too, and koans play in the imaginal. So they're transmitted orally or in written form. Um, but first they were transmitted orally. They were stories that were told and then they became um, records that were used in Sanzen. And so the teacher would give you a koan and then you would work on it. And so when something is transmitted orally or even in, in written form, we are participating. Whoever we are as practitioners receiving the story in a Dharma talk or reading it in a book or a teacher gives it to us, once we hear it, we're already having a imaginal experience. We're already having a reaction, a somatic experience. So our, our minds generate a response. We might see the scene of a koan, like the famous koan um, from the Mumang Khan, uh, does a dog have Buddha nature? So a student asks their teacher, there's, there's apparently a, a dog in China, kind of raggedy uh, outside the monastery gates, and the, the student looks at the dog and is like, does even a dog have Buddha nature? So look, I, I gave you an image, and now you have it in your mind, and you're imagining whatever 
dog as raggedy dog that you can think of I was as I was telling it and perhaps imagining that teacher and that student and that interaction um, so that happens that happens when we hear a story that happens when we hear the chants that happens um, throughout our lives we're we're constantly using this function of the mind the imagination and having somatic responses to things so we might hear that story that I just told, that brief snippet or vignette of that koan, uh, does a dog have Buddha nature? And we feel the scene, we feel the question, a part of us might feel inspired or intrigued, another part of us might close down. Uh, we might have different sensations happening in the body, different images going through the mind. So right away, we begin participating in the field of the koan. And for some of us, we hear it, that happens, and then it's easily let go. For others, you hear it, and something might tug, something might linger, some feeling, some intrigue, some image. This, like I said, is happening all the time in our Zen practice. So it might be words from a Dharma talk that you chew on for weeks or months or just between practice sessions, something that Mushin says or something that you read in a book. So they, koans have that sympathetic resonance. They invite us to play. They invite us to participate. And in this invitation, the koan becomes part of our practice awakening. It becomes part of the, the stuff, the texture of our practice, the inquiry of our practice. And we are changed by it. I mean, we're constantly being constructed and reconstructed. So anything that comes in uh, through our senses is, is changing us or has the potential to change us, even if it is just temporary. And then perhaps the koan also changes in our engagement with us, with it. So in the case koans that are recorded in the books that I mentioned earlier, uh, the koan usually has a pointer, um, which is kind of like a preface, uh, a teacher kind of giving you like, like inspiring you to read on. Uh, often it says, to test, I cite this case, and then they go on to cite it. So that was written later. Uh, then the koan was somebody who was working on it and teaching from it and then was inspired to, to write it down. Uh, and then there, it also usually has a poem, a kind of summary of uh, the koan and the insight that that koan contains. And then some of the collections have these lengthy, lengthy commentaries written by multiple teachers or by the compiler that includes references to other koans or a little bit of background story about the teachers. Um, but so when working with a koan, you would, for that kind of koan, you would typically work with the case and then the poem and then you would even write your own response in, in the form of a poem. And so your experience becomes part of the life of the koan, the lineage of the koan. And I like to think of it perhaps opens the door for someone else to see the way that you perceived it and understood it. And maybe we're constantly adding uh, ourselves to the lineage in that way, opening more facets of that jewel. 
So the miscellaneous koans are different, like I said, from the case koans, and that they're a little bit more obscure. You, got, you have less that you can sink your teeth into. It's not a whole story. It's often a word or a sentence at most, perhaps a question. And they are meant uh, to help a student in their time of practice to really familiarize themselves with the mind of non-discrimination, functional emptiness. And so they show us where and how we separate, where we're uncomfortable, um, places, things that we might be uncomfortable embodying, parts of ourselves that we're not yet ready to inhabit, or things in the world that we feel are foreign and, and kind of disowned in a way from our experience of ourselves or reality. They help us, more simply speaking, connect with the stuff of the world, the stuff of our lives. They help us engage with the everyday, but not so much as mere materiality. And so this is an interesting place in this whole world of koans and the whole world of working with image and the imagination and what resonates with you. But sometimes we have this idea of practice, like I have my experience of practice on the cushion, I touch into a quiet silence, and then I just need to bring that into my everyday life. And my everyday life is often identified based on its material, like, like my body and the work I do. But we have this whole inner life as well that is part of our zazen as much it is as it is part of our work and our roles and our responsibilities. And a koan can translate practice and keep our inner life alive in all of that. Um, so it can help us engage with the everyday, not merely as materiality, but also as alive, mystery, creative play of life. And that's the real invitation of koan is to keep us connected to the creative spontaneity of life itself, not to get stuck anywhere. So they say to us, you can sit so quiet and still in the zendo, why not save a ghost or stop the fighting across the river? And then the practice and response of these koans uses both image and soma. So if you were working on it in sanzen, you would be asked to, to um, embody it, to sh show me. That's what a teacher might say, show me. Don't tell me about it, don't explain it. Show me directly. But even before, or even if you're not interested in working on it in a with a teacher in the sanzen room, koans can be companion us in our zazen and in our practice. And when we let a koan in, we let them into our soma. We let the image speak somatically. We, we become it, become that ghost. We let the image work on us. The image is sometimes a form of question or inquiry. So for those of you who are familiar with dream work, it's a similar process, but you aren't looking to interpret. We are listening with the body, feeling into the wisdom of the image itself. Like we don't actually know what it is, is the best way to start. 
allowing the imaginal response, the somatic response, which sometimes comes through in words, more like poetry, not so much explanation. So I'd like to give you a koan, like I said I would in the beginning. Um, here's a koan from the miscellaneous collection. Count the stars in the night sky. Count the stars in the night sky. So now um, we can work on it together or I'll talk us through how I would work on it. And this is just a little snippet and please have your own experience and see where your heart, mind, body wants to go with it. So we enter the night sky. If this were a dream, you might ask in order to re-enter re the dream after waking and wanting to know oh, what was that about, you might ask, well, which part of this phrase is most interesting? Which part is most disturbing? It's often a good idea to start where the energy is. My teacher Chosen says every word in the koan is important, but it's important to start where the energy is. Since we are working on this together, let's start with the night sky. Like when you wake up from a dream, that's the image. That's the image at the end of the sentence. So that's the image that we just woke up from. And it's still living, that night sky. Wanting to be dreamed on. So what is it like to be the night? The night sky. To have starlight streaming through you. You got a sense of that being the night sky, however you experience it, letting your awareness expand, your body expand, starlight streaming through you. What else is there? How big is this night? Does the night sky have any boundaries? And questions can help keep the curiosity alive and help us stay in the koan. So what does the earth look like from the night's perspective? How far into the into the night can you let yourself go? What points of reference does the night have? As the night sky, who are you? Who is this person you think you are from the night's perspective? So those are some questions. I'm going to continue with some more play. So what if the night sky could be a porthole to the cosmos? 
a reminder that we're sitting on a planet that is spinning like a top at 1,000 miles per hour around the sun that is moving around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. And the sun is traveling through the galaxy at 500,000 miles per hour. And the Milky Way galaxy, one of two trillion galaxies in the known universe, is moving at 1.5 million miles per hour. The closest star that we can see from the Earth is four light years away. And the furthest star, besides the sun, and the furthest star that we can see with the naked eye is a star in Cassiopeia constellation that's 16,403 light years away. And the furthest star ever detected is nicknamed Acarius, and it's seen through the Hubble telescope is 9 billion light years away. But what about night on Earth? What happens in the night? Who are you in the night? Perhaps when asleep, in deep, dreamless sleep. Where are all your problems, worries, pains, judgments, opinions, roles, and responsibilities in deep, dreamless sleep. The night helps us forget who we are, and perhaps it helps us remember what else we are, emptiness. Count the stars in the night sky. When working on a koan, sometimes it's helpful to bring it back. Okay, we went down that road, the night. Now let's come back to the koan itself. For those of us located on Earth's body, to count the stars of the night sky, we must look up. Looking up at the sky reminds us that we're not just of this Earth, but also of the cosmos. In the Zazen instructions given by Shoto Harada Roshi, he always talks about Zazen as sitting between heaven and earth, the sky stretching up, or the head stretching up towards the sky, the heart and mind open like the sky, the body extending down to the earth. We're sitting in that middle. To look up, to look up and take in the sky allows the vast emptiness of the sky to fill the mind. It's amazing how this can happen. Even the patches of sky I can see from the city now in Portland, just such a different experience of the sky than being at the monastery. Still, it's amazing how just to look up and see the clear blue or the moon and the night, that the mind becomes bigger. <laughs> Thoughts become less intrusive. The troubles that were attached, the mind was attaching to, a little more ephemeral. To look up allows 
the vastness of the sky to fill our mind, the eternal silence of the night, the dark, the sky. Awareness is often described as being sky-like or even like space, limitless, unbounded, ungraspable. Look up, look up. This also reminds us to take in our own vastness, to open to the mystery. Usually when we're stuck in self-centered, self-absorbed thinking, our gaze is a kind of tunnel vision, maybe only seeing what's right in front of us, maybe not even seeing what's right in front of us. It's kind of a collapsed focus with walls narrowing in, moving through that narrative, that such practice narrative of past regrets, future plans, past, future, past, future, present judgments. Me, me, mine, me. <laughs> so linear, so limited. And looking up breaks us from that linearity. It takes in something that can't be measured, the sky, and reminds us to look at the stars. Another way that I like to work on this koan is to sit with the mind open like the sky in Zazen, and then anything that appears in awareness to experience it as a flash of starlight. Anything that comes in through the senses, body sensations, feelings, emotions, thoughts, visual field, sound. I like to do it with my eyes closed, especially because it gives that night quality. And then anything that arises in awareness is starlight flashing in. Reminding us of emptiness, which my uh, teacher chosen always translates as pure potential energy. When we let go of the limits we put on ourselves in the world, there's pure potential, pure potential. And it allows the mystery to accompany us, there to be possibility in every moment. So now we're at the word count. Count. That's the word I was trying to avoid. I don't know about you. Maybe that's the part that your mind said, oh, that's so arduous or boring even. Or maybe a part of you said, wow, wow. I've never even thought to do that. Or maybe a part of you said, I do that all the time. I love counting the stars. <laughs> or a kid part of you. Huh? Breath counting. So counting is a part of Zen. Breath counting is a very common practice in the Zen tradition. Sometimes taught as Sokan breathing, where one extends the exhalation by silently intoning a number like, And the goal isn't to get anywhere. If you get to 10, you start back at one. Some teachers even teach it, just count to one. One, one, each exhale is one. Hogan Roshi, a number of years ago during Sashin, it was the second day and it was a 10 day Sashin. It was a hard second day for most of us. And 
he he came in the zendo and he's like sometimes all you can do is count to two counting gives the mind something to do it's grounding there's it's always grounding when we give the mind something to do besides ramble around worry judge there is a woman at the monastery one year who took up counting as a practice. She counted her footsteps, she counted her breath, she counted the chirps that the crickets made during Zazen. And counting became her mantra. Count the stars in the night sky. Perhaps this is an impossible task. There is something about Zen practice that invites us into the impossible not to believe in certain dogmas, but to be open to what is beyond the mind's knowing. Perhaps you could call this wise hope or unflagging optimism. We make pretty impossible vows every day or every time you recite the bodhisattva vows. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. So I wanted to present this koan and many ways that one could work with it, and those are just a few. I'm curious if anybody was touched in any way of another door that that could open. What is powerful about koan and image is that you keep learning. You keep learning. It isn't about getting the right answer or the best answer. It's about living inside the questions that the koan itself brings up for you. So living with the image. And so it invites us to continually companion it or let it continually companion us or to um, let it work on us. Like if we just hear a koan, we have like curiosity about it for 10 minutes and then we're like ah that was cool but what else then it doesn't it we don't taste the the magic or the um the possibility within the koan if we just like sit with it for a little bit and then put it away you can sit with a koan for the rest of your life a koan like this but you also can do it for like a month or a week. Like what's it like to sit as the night sky for 10 days straight? How will that change you? Or count the stars in the sky as many as you can for a month. Or start looking for stars to count in your daily life. Make room for the impossible for a full year and see what happens in your dedication and commitment to the koan. The wisdom and love of the koan lies inside you. It's up to you to engage with it. And, and I'm using koan really broad here. So I introduced one, which is a pretty ordinary sentence in some ways. I don't know if anyone's ever said that to you, but it's not something so out there, right? Count the stars in the night sky. It seems very doable from one aspect. Um, but it also, because it's ordinary, it reminds me that like koans are appearing in my daily life all of the time. Invitations to look a little bit deeper. Images that appear in my imagination or in dreams that leave an impact, that leave a question. Um, 
some words that come out of a poem or a song that really touch you or a chant, one of the Zen chants, or maybe even just an image in your daily life. Like for whatever reason, there's um, just like a, uh, a beam of light that shines down in a particular way in, in your window and you're drawn to it or um, a branch from a tree or a flower or when you're taking your walk. Like giving, giving a little bit more space for those invitations that are coming from the mystery, inviting you to a different relationship to pay attention and see how that intimacy of your attention and the image um, may be a teaching right there in the moment, maybe an opportunity to breathe, look at the sky, whatever it is that catches your attention. And even those flirts from our daily life can be brought into Zazen. Like I've sat as a tree so many Zazen periods in the last 15 years since I've been practicing. And and trees, like, because I do that so often, trees have a certain kind of lifeblood for me. They represent a certain kind of stillness that when I'm walking through Portland and I'm drawn to a tree, it's a reminder like, oh, perhaps I need more of that rooting energy and I can sit with that tree. Even when we part ways in my daily life, I can bring it in an image in my zazen. So I'm inviting you to pay attention to the images, the koans that come out and want to be companioned in your, in your lives. Well, thank you.